Well, hey, uh, I do see a few new faces, and so let me just take a minute and introduce myself. My name is Philip Patterson, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, so I get the privilege now of moving us into a time of Bible study. While we're doing that, though, I want to invite the middle schoolers. If you want, you can stand on up, and Pastor Joe, who's standing right there in the back, he's going to lead you guys on out to a class that we have specially designed for you. Um, But for the rest of us, we're going to dive into the Word of God. And so if you have a Bible, you can grab it and open to John chapter 16. We've been going uh, verse by verse through uh, the Gospel of John each week together for a while now, and we find ourselves in John 16 today, and uh, we're going to be finishing up this this, uh, passage. We're going to be looking at John 16, verses 16 through, I think it's 33. Um, As we do this, we're going to read this together in just a couple of minutes, and as we do that, what what I think you're going to find is what I found this week studying through it, is what I think you're going to find is that there's one major theme basically exploding out of this passage, out of these 16, 17 verses. There's one major theme, and that theme is joy. Jesus has a whole lot to say about joy, and that's, that's, a, that's a great thing. Uh, that's great news, because the fact is, uh, every person on this planet is looking for joy. Every person in this room, if you haven't already found it in Christ, you're looking for joy. You're searching for joy. Uh, but what was so fascinating to me as I studied through this passage this week, was noticing uh, the backdrop against which Jesus was speaking about joy. Um, if you've been with us for the last couple of months, you'll, you'll know that the, the last few chapters we've looked at, John 13 through really like John 17, is all um, you know, a detailed account of Jesus' last night with his disciples. Right? And so he's, uh, this is the night that he's betrayed. He's, this is his final teaching, his final meal. He, has, you know, the, he in, in installs communion. Uh, he goes out and he prays for the disciples, and then he goes off to the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? And so uh, in just a couple of hours from the moment that he makes these comments that we're about to read, Jesus is going to be in the garden. One of his followers is going to come and betray him, lead a mob of armed men to him. They're going to arrest him. They're going to bring him into to an illegal hearing. They're going to falsely accuse him, interrogate him, mock him, spit on him, beat him, punch him, flog him. They're going to put, uh, end, up, end up taking him to Golgotha where they're going to put nails through his hands and his feet. They're going to pierce him with a spear. He will die literally hanging naked on a cross in just a few short hours from when he makes these comments. Okay? And Jesus knows this is all going to go down. He knows it's all going to happen. He keeps talking about it, doesn't he? In the last few chapters, he knows what's about to happen. And yet, he still has the audacity to be speaking about joy. Isn't that amazing? Actually, if you, a lot of Bible scholars think that at the end of, I think it's at the end of John 15. But where Jesus, after he's, they've eaten their last meal together, and they've, they've taken communion, and he's given some final teaching, he says, I think it's at the end of 15, where he says, now, uh, arise, let us go from here, or something like that. A lot of scholars think that he's actually calling his disciples to get up and leave the upper room where they've been meeting and actually start heading out toward the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And so, so chapter 16, what we've been studying, you know, and what we're going to read today is all, you know, being said on the go. They're walking and talking. As they're heading up from the upper room, they're, they're, they're saying all of this on the, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's literally marching toward his death. He's marching toward his betrayal, and he's speaking about joy, how amazing is that? As I was sitting thinking about that this week, it reminded me of Lord of the Rings. Um, I know, I don't even know. Uh, I thought about, I, should, I thought I should use this football illustration or something. It's Super Bowl. And I thought, nope, I just couldn't. I'll stick with what I know. All right, so uh, it, uh, it made me think of Gandalf. 
Because if you're not familiar with the story of Lord of the Rings, there's a, there's a, Gandalf is a wizard. And, wiz, and Gandalf is basically kind of the, the leader over this fellowship of men and dwarves and elves and all the rest, right? Um, so they basically leading this, this fellowship together, and they're, and, uh, they're going off to save Middle-earth. Basically, the weight of the world is sitting on Gandalf's shoulders as he leads these men into darkness and peril and, and tribulation and sorrow and trial, right? The, the darkness has kind of uh, like encompassed them, right? The weight of the world is on Gandalf's shoulders. And yet, there's this one point in the story, right in the thick of it, when darkness is all around them, uh, Tolkien writes that somebody says something, I can't remember what it is, but somebody says something, and Gandalf starts laughing. And it's this real deep, hearty, like joy-filled laugh. And the people that are around him in that moment are kind of staring in disbelief, like they can't believe that he's laughing in this moment. With all the, their circumstances and situation, they can't believe that he's laughing in this moment. And the way that Tolkien writes it is that he says, that, you know, there's so much, it's like there's a fountain of joy deep down inside Gandalf that, you know, if you were to, you know, no matter how big of a boulder you try to put on top of that fountain of joy, it's still going to bubble over, okay? One of the characters actually makes a comment, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something like, you know, he says, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation, there is so much joy within Gandalf that, that, he, that, that there's enough mirth to set a kingdom laughing. There is enough mirth and joy within Gandalf to set a whole kingdom laughing. I love that because that's the picture that we have here of Jesus. Right when darkness is encircled around him and he's literally marching toward his death, he speaks of joy. That's, that's amazing to me. And so um, as, we, as we look at this today, we're going to see that this is not only what we see in Jesus, but we'll see that this is the invitation that he offers to you and me today. To have this kind of joy, walk through this kind of sorrow, walk through this kind of tribulation, and still have a joy, a peace that surpasses understanding. So let's look at this together. As I said, uh, Jesus has a lot to say about joy here. He he tells us the nature of joy. He tells us how we can experience this joy. And then finally, he tells us how we live in light of the joy of Christ. Okay, the nature of joy, how we can experience it, and then how to live in light of it. So first, let's look at the nature of joy. We're looking at John chapter 16, verse 16. Today, what we're going to do is I'm going to read a section of it. We'll talk for a little bit, and we'll read the next section, and then so on. Okay, so let's read the first few verses here. John chapter 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. And so some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. All right, so let's stop there, and I'm going to point out two things that Jesus says here about the nature of joy. Two things. First, he says that it's inevitable. Joy is inevitable. He says your sorrow will turn to joy. 
your sorrow will turn into joy. He didn't tell his disciples your sorrow might turn into joy, or maybe if you're one of the lucky ones and you don't have a whole lot of turbulence in your life, maybe you'll have some joy. No, he says your sorrow will turn to joy. This means, friends, um, that if you are a disciple of Jesus here, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that God is building joy into our life. It's a promise. That's a great promise. And listen, I, and I know that there are many days where that doesn't feel like that's the case, right? There are many days that, that that feels like that's not what's actually happening. But we can be confident, if we're a follower of Jesus, that he is building joy in us, if for no other reason than this. That, that God is a God of joy, that one of his main characteristics, one of his primary attributes is joy. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he is conforming you to his likeness. He is conforming you into his image. God is a God of joy. He's conforming you into uh, his image. Therefore, you will be a person of joy. And that might be a debatable uh, idea. I say God is a God of joy. Our society would probably say, you know, I don't see the, God of the Bible as a God of joy. Right? In, in our society, we caricature him uh, typically as, you know, the white-bearded, grumpy curmudgeon, right? And if you don't know what a curmudgeon is, we don't use that word a lot, that means killjoy, right? He, we see him as a killjoy, not as a god of joy. But nothing could be further from the truth. If you read um, uh, in our Bible reading plan last couple of weeks, you, you, you will have read Proverbs 8 recently, the last couple of weeks. Uh, and in Proverbs 8... Uh, the Bible uh, describes God's attitude when he was creating the universe. And there's this really, it's this really sweet passage, really moving passage where it says that God was, uh, he delighted in mankind and has delighted uh, every day. Or he has delight in mankind and has delight every day. And, and the word that's used there in the Hebrew literally means to frolic. Right? He was delighted in mankind and, and, and delights every day. He, it means to frolic, it means to jump, it means to dance, it means to clap your hands. This is the picture of God we have in Proverbs 8. He delights over us. This is how joy is. Zephaniah is another one. Zephaniah chapter 3, the, the prophet says that, that God delights in us and rejoices over us with singing. Right? He sings in joy over us. He, he dances and he frolics and he's, he's joyous. This is the picture of God. We have, a, we have a God of joy. And what scriptures tell us is that this characteristic of God is, um, this is what the theologians call it, it's a communicable attribute. Right? It's a communicable attribute. I know that's a mouthful, uh, but we know what that means, right? Communicable. All right? What, what's a communicable disease? Something you can catch. That's right. It's contagious. It's, it's transferable. Okay? If, you have an, if you have an intimate relationship with someone who has a communicable disease, what's going to happen? You're going to get that disease, right? You're going to get it. If you have an intimate relationship with God, you will, you will get this. It's contagious. You will get this communicable attribute. You will catch it, if you will. And, and here's how I can be confident that it's one of God's communicable attributes, one that, that's contagious, one that we will catch if we have an intimate relationship with him. Because the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, it's second on the list. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are communicable attributes. If we have an intimate relationship with God, we will catch these things. They're contagious. And I love the illustration. Again, it's, he, he, he makes it very clear. This is inevitable. We will have joy. He, he uses the illustration of a woman having a baby. Um, I've watched Jessica give birth now to, to all three children. And um, 
listen, the baby coming out was inevitable, right? It was inevitable. It was going to happen. It, imagine for a moment when she's having Israel, uh, if, you know, she's laying in the hospital and she's doing the breathing and she's pushing and she's experiencing the pain and she's right in the thick of it. What if in that moment I said, you know, Jessica, I've been thinking. <sighs> I'm not sure if I'm ready, right? Let's rethink this. You know, I'm not ready to have kids. What would happen to me in that moment? Nothing good, right? That baby's coming out. It's inevitable. It's happening. There's no holding it back. And this is an incredibly encouraging promise, especially for those of us, those of us who have turbulence in our lives, this perpetual turbulence in our lives. We feel like joy is just beyond us. It will happen. It's inevitable. The second thing that Jesus tells us about the nature of this joy is that it's unshakable. Jesus says in verse 22, he says, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I love that. Nobody will take your joy from you. Why? Because our joy rests in God and God does not change. God does not change. This is really important for us uh, to understand. This is, this is the difference between uh, uh, building your life on shifting sand and building your life on a rock, a firm foundation. Okay? Um, Everybody in this, in this planet is, is looking for joy. I said that every person in this room here is looking for joy. And the fact is that each and every day we're going to be tempted to build our life on something other than God. Each and every day. This is the temptation that we face in our, in our finances or our possessions or in our savings account, you know, or, or our, our relationships, our careers, our, you know, our beauty, our health. But the fact is, and I'm preaching to the choir, you guys know this, these, these things are shifting sand. These things will change. They are frail. They are fickle. The stock market will change. We've seen that. It's devastated many, many people. The stock market will change. Our job security will change. Right? Our, our health one day will falter. Our beauty will fade. Right? Beauty fades. It's a reality. We say it all the time here that, that one day we will get that phone call that will turn our life upside down, right? It's not, it's not an if, it's when. It, the only question is, is it going to happen today or tomorrow? We will get that, that phone call that will turn our life upside down. And if this is the foundation upon which we have built our life, God help us. These things will come crashing down. Our joy will come crashing down. Sorrow is inevitable in our life. These things will come crashing down. The, the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, how do you reconcile these events, you know, the, the, the change in life, you know, Matt said it earlier, said the only thing consistent in life is change. These things will happen, right? How do we reconcile sorrow and still have joy? How do you reconcile sorrow and joy? And frankly, the world will tell you that you can't. The world tells us that sorrow and joy are, are mutually exclusive, that when sorrow and pain and tribulation and trial come into your life, joy will vanish, only to return once you have expelled the things in your life that, that give you sorrow and give you pain. Jesus, on the other hand, tells us that we can have joy right in the, in the thick of it, right in the midst of our sorrow. And often, in fact, he says, this sorrow will help you build your joy. That's what he says. Sorrow actually helps build your joy. He says, you know, the, Paul says, he says, he works all things together for the good. Works all things together for the good, for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. And you can go back to the baby illustration that Jesus gives. He's, um, uh, this is a really fa- I, The more I've thought about this illustration that Jesus uses, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was saying. Right? This is a fascinating illustration. Um, think about this for a moment. 
what is it that caused the woman so much pain? The baby. It was the baby that was causing the woman so much sorrow. But what was causing her so much pain, what was causing her so much sorrow, eventually caused her inexpressible joy. That's why Jesus actually said in verse 20, your sorrow will turn into joy. He didn't say get rid of the sorrow and then you'll have joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. So so the fact is when, when sorrow and pain and trial and tribulation comes into our life, as it will... He says that actually in in just a few verses, he's going to say, in the world you will have tribulation. It's inevitable. When sorrow and pain and trial and tribulation come into our life, which for some of you, that's today. The fact is we have a choice. You know, we can can labor and and we can push, right? And we 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 can trust that God will transform that which is bringing us pain into that which is going to give us inexpressible joy. Or we can listen to the world and we can basically walk away, abort. Those are the choices that we have. The world says that joy and sorrow are mutually exclusive. If you want to have joy, you need to keep sorrow as far away from you as you possibly can. Trial away from you as, po- as far as you possibly can. And by the way, I was reading a, I was, I was, uh, reading a great sermon by Tim Keller on this this week. And uh, he says it's, it's interesting how, how the, world, the world does this in one of a few ways. And this is really tempting. Right? Uh, he says the, the world tries to, you know, to keep sorrow away from you as, or tries to get you to keep sorrow away from you as, as far as you possibly can in, in one of a few ways. He says, you know, if you want to keep sorrow away, forget your pain. Right? Just, just forget it. And you can do that through chemicals. You can do that by, you know, it's as simple as enough red wine at the end of the day. Right? Drink enough red wine and you will numb that pain. You will, you will forget it ever, you know, was, was an issue. Right? Or a far more popular and acceptable way that we do that is just turn on the TV. Right? I mean, we, why is reality television such a big deal? I, I think it's just we want to escape into someone else's reality and forget our own. Right? We want to forget the pain in our own. We want to forget the trials. Just forget the pain. You know, uh, immerse yourself in the touching drama of parenthood, you know, or whatever shows you kids are watching these days. Um, <laughs> Right? We, just, we just want to immerse ourselves in, in these other realities because the, the, our own personal reality is, is too much. Just forget the sorrow. Forget the pain. That's how you can have joy. Or if you don't want to go that route, they say, you know, well, just avoid the sorrow. Avoid the pain. That's the second option. You know, any, anything, any situation or anything in your life, any maybe, maybe relationship or commitment in your life that is causing you grief, well, if it's causing you grief, just walk away. Just walk away from it. If it's not giving you immediate satisfaction, immediate gratification, then just walk away. Or you don't want to do that? Okay, well, just deny your pain then. Basically, just, just minimize it. It could always be worse. At least I don't have as much junk as that guy. At least I don't have, you know, have as many issues as, as that person. It could always be worse. You don't want to have sorrow or pain in your life? Forget about it, avoid it, or deny it. But basically, think about that. It, that's basically telling you to turn your mind off to reality. And that's not the message of Jesus at all. The, the world says you can't, sorrow and joy cannot mix. Jesus says the opposite. Jesus is walking toward sorrow. He's walking toward the garden. He's walking toward the cross. Why? You know, what's interesting, the, the Bible actually calls Jesus a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And it also says, for the joy set before him, endure the cross, scorning its shame. I heard somebody say this week that, that the opposite of joy 
isn't sorrow at all. The opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. That's good to remember. The opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. That's why Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, I don't want you to grieve as one without hope. He didn't say, I don't want you to grieve. I don't want you to have grief in your life. I don't want you to have sorrow in your life. Sorrow is inevitable. In the world, you will have tribulation, right? He said, I I don't want you to grieve as one without hope. I read one sermon this week that uh, I read a lot of sermons in in anticipation for this. Uh, One of the sermons I read this week uh, described biblical joy um, as buoyancy. He, the, the pastor was, was pointing out that um, biblical joy uh, is, is the, the definition in the original language is really similar to having uh, delight. Joy is very similar to, to have joy is to have delight. And the word delight actually means to be light. In other words, you're buoyant. To, biblical joy means that you are buoyant. In other words, you don't sink. You're unsinkable. Nothing is so heavy that it can sink you. You have a hope that, that makes you so light that nothing is so heavy that it can sink you. In other words, true joy is not the absence of stormy waters. True joy, biblical joy, is the ability to stay afloat during the storm. Okay? True joy is not the absence of the storm. It's the ability to stay afloat during the storm. That's why Paul, again, the guy who suffered, we've talked about it a lot, all, all, he suffers all kinds of trials, all kinds of tribulation. He, this is a guy who was uh, beaten and arrested multiple times, shackled. He was uh, uh, flogged, you know, 39 times, multiple times. Uh, he was shipwrecked multiple times. One of those times he was shipwrecked and landed, you know, ended up swimming to an island just to be bit by a snake, right? This is a guy who, who dealt with it, ended up martyred. He said, uh, he said these light and momentary afflictions are nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Okay? In other words, he had, he had a hope of the eternal weight of glory that made everything else he dealt with seem light and momentary. Light as a feather, they couldn't sink him. His joy was, it was buoyant. Nothing can sink him. I'll, I'll go one more time to this baby illustration before we move on. I love this baby illustration, all right? It, just, to, just to show how sorrow and joy are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but, but this joy that Christ offers enables us to walk through sorrow with this, this unprecedented uh, ability uh, like, like nothing else. So this, this great baby illustration. And again, I don't have firsthand experience here on this, but I did talk to Jessica this week about this. I confirmed it with her. This is all legit. Immediately, you, mom, you, you, you moms who have, who have given birth, uh, you, you know exactly what I'm saying here. Immediately after she gave birth to Israel, and, and just the moments after, minutes after, even as she was, she was holding him in her arms, the pain in her body was not gone. Is that the case? The pain wasn't, wasn't gone. The pain didn't just automatically vanish. You know, the sorrow was there. Oh, sorrow's gone. Now joy is here. They, they overlapped. The, 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 the pain and, and the, you know, the, the throbbing and, and the exhaustion was still right there. But the joy of new life overwhelmed the pain that was still in her body. Does that make sense? Sorrow and joy are not mutually ex- exclusive, but what Christ offers is an unsinkable joy that will overwhelm the pain. So how can we have this kind of joy? 
Let's keep reading. Verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So, how can we have this joy? Well, very simply put, We can have the joy through a relationship with God the Father, a renewed relationship. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus says very clearly here, he's talking about the day when they're going to have this joy, when they see him, when they know him. They said, you're going to have this uh, as a result of a new, unprecedented relationship with God the Father through me. Okay, This is the very reason why Jesus came, because the Bible says our, our sins separate us from a holy God. Jesus came to this world, and through his life, death, and resurrection, has reconciled us to God the Father. Through Jesus, we can have an intimate, immediate access to God. Eden has been restored. We can walk through the garden again with the Lord. When I was reading uh, N.T. Wright's take on this passage, this is what he pointed out. He pointed out just how counterintuitive the kingdom of God is, right? This, this, this immediate access to God. He said, you know, in our world, it's, you can tell how important somebody is by how hard it is to be able to reach that person, right? You can tell how important somebody is by how many people you have to go through to get to that guy or that gal, right? If I wanted to talk to President Obama, I can't you know, pick up a phone call, or pick up a phone and just make a call and, you know, hey, let me talk to Brock, right? It wouldn't work that way. Four, five, six, seven people I'd have to go through, I'd have to continue to get access to finally be able to reach him. I couldn't DM him on Twitter and expect a personal response. It doesn't work like that, okay? But, but not so with the kingdom of God. The, these verses clearly describe our, our immediate, intimate access with God the Father, with the creator, king of the universe, Unbelievable. These verses clearly, clearly show us we don't need to go through a priest. We don't need to go through Mother Mary. We don't need to go through saints or, or martyrs. Jesus is saying we have immediate, intimate access with the Father. And by the way, this is we, we're talking, how, how do we receive the joy? How, how do we receive this joy that we, we so long for? Well, it's by, it's by living for that which we were created, and we were created to have that intimate relationship with God. This is how we receive the joy, is by having that intimate access with the Father. And by the way, this is why David, uh, the psalmist, wrote, one thing I ask, just one thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty all the days of my life. Just one thing, if I could just be in his presence, just gaze at him, gaze at his beauty all the days of my life. Better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere, is what he said. And then in verse 27, Jesus tells us very clearly, here's how you can have that intimate, immediate access to the Father. Here's how you can have it. He says in in verse 27, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In other words, Jesus is saying your relationship with God will be based on your attitude towards what I have taught you about who I am. You follow me? Our our relationship with God is dependent upon our response to what Jesus has said about himself. And by the way, this is where Christianity uh, gets a whole lot of heat. Because there, there are people out there who, who would say, well, you know, I like the message from Jesus. I like the message, you know, the, the messages that he gave, the, the teachings that he gave about, you know, doing good and, you know, uh, serving the poor and loving our enemies. All that's great. I'll take the message from Jesus, but I don't like your message about Jesus. Right? This whole I am the way, truth, and the life thing, nobody comes to the Father except through me. I'll take his message from him, but not about him. That's far too exclusive. We all get to God, you know, our own different ways and our own paths. Um, But that's not what Jesus said. Very clearly, that's not what Jesus says here. He's saying that our relationship with God is absolutely dependent upon not what we do with his sermons, but what we do with him. John, the the guy who wrote this book, the gospel writer, he says the same thing in in chapter 20. We've referenced this a lot. He says, at the end of the book, he says, I wrote this book, I wrote these things down so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. That by believing in Jesus as the Son of God, you might have life in his name. Um, so our, our relationship with God is utterly dependent upon what we make of Jesus. Not just what we make of the teachings of Jesus, but what we make of, with Jesus himself. And, 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 and it's what's interesting is that the disciples who have been with Jesus now for years, I mean, traveling with him and, and sleeping side by side with him and, and, and listening to his teachings and hearing his claims, just before he goes to the cross, he reiterates to them one more time, in case they've forgotten, here's who I am. All right, one more time. Here's who I am. And, and because he reiterates it, I'm going to reiterate it here. If our relationship with God the Father is dependent upon what we do with the claims of Jesus and his identity and his mission, what are, what are his claims? This is what he says in one sentence here in verse, eight, verse 28. In one sentence, Jesus gives us this profound claim. He says, I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And in a way that only Jesus can, he packs in four major doctrines in one sentence. All right? Um, in one sentence, Jesus gives us four major doctrines about himself, which I would love to unpack in detail. Don't worry, I won't. All right? But I will point them out. First, he says, I came from the Father. I came from the Father. In other words, this is the doctrine of his preexistence. Before he was born on this earth, he existed. He already existed, living in unity with the Father. Second thing he says, he says, I have come into the world. This is the doctrine of incarnation. All right, we're, we're familiar with this one. This is what we celebrate every Christmas, that the Son of God took on flesh. And John, you know, it makes you wonder if John was kind of thinking of these things when he writes in the beginning of the book, he says, you know, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say, you know, and the Word of God took on flesh. Before John ever wrote that, Jesus said it with his own lips. He says, I, I, I came from God, and I've come into the world. And I know we've heard this so many times, I could just see you guys kind of glazing over. Stay with me. Listen, imagine, consider the wonder of this. The pre-existent God who, who spoke the universe into existence, who, who, who created it and sustains it, emptied himself and became vulnerable and took on flesh, right, was born as a baby, made himself vulnerable. There's nothing more vulnerable and dependent than a baby, you know, he, made him, he humbled himself, was born in a barn, was held, you know, had to be held by a 15-year-old peasant girl. 
had to be held and had to be swaddled, had to be breastfed. He had to be burped afterwards. Think about that. The God who spoke the universe into existence needed help burping. Why? Why would he do that? Well, the answer is the third doctrine. The third thing that he says. He says, I'm now leaving the world. I am leaving the world. This is the doctrine of his death. We know how he's leaving the world. He's going to die, and he's going to die on a cross. He doesn't stop talking about it. He keeps talking about his death through the cross. The preexistent God takes on flesh, makes himself vulnerable that he might die. He gave himself flesh so that he could be pierced. And then finally, he says, I'm leaving the world. Uh, Excuse me. Finally, he says, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. And this is the doctrine of intercession. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This basically means that Jesus now stands before God and acts as our representative. I was reading um, uh, this last week about uh, this, this thing that they did sometimes in the Old Testament days when two armies would come up against one another. Sometimes they would pick a representative from within the army to, to represent the whole army. There was actually a term, archegos. It simply means their champion. They would pick the best fighter from each army, and these two, these two fighters would, would battle one another, and, and your, this, this champion represented your army. So if, you're, if your champion won, your army won. If your champion lost, your whole, your whole army lost. And they'd take your land, and you, they'd force you into slavery, right? The, the, how the, the champion did is how you ended up doing and by the way, this is that we can read about in 1 Samuel. Goliath was the archegos of the Philistine army. He was their champion. And who was Israelite's champion? David. All right, David. The little runt, shepherd boy, David. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is our representative. Jesus is our archegos. That's the point. He was our advocate on the battlefield, and he's won. It is finished. He's won the battle, and the battle that he has won is now accredited to us. He stands before God as our archegos, as our representative. He intercedes for us. That's the doctrine of intercession. Jesus says here in verse 27, he says, If you believe this, these claims, then verse 28, If you believe this, if you put your faith in who I am and what I have done, you will be saved. You will have this relationship with God the Father, and you will have the joy that you are so longing for. And this leads us to our very last point. This will be quick here. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and are, and are experiencing this unsinkable joy being built into our lives, how then do we respond? How, how then do we live from this day forward? We, we see it in the last section of our scripture. Let's read from verse 29. His disciples said, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart I have overcome the world. This is a really important piece of scripture here. All right, please please uh, don't miss this. Because the disciples say, oh, now we get it. We're there, okay? We've arrived. You're the son of God. You're the savior of the world. We're worshiping. We get it now. And Jesus says, do you? 
You know, not, you don't often see Jesus have that kind of snarky response. But he's being totally snarky. Do you really? You know, you say you've got it, you've arrived. But in just a couple of hours, you say I'm, you say I'm God incarnate. In just a couple of hours, there's going to be some tribulation from the world and you're going to run. You're going to flee. You're going to abandon me. You're going to desert me. You're not going to use what you say you know. When the battle comes, you flee. Friends, Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us, in the world there will be tribulation. There will be the mobs that will come. There will be the stormy waters. That's the reality. Sorrow will come. But he says, I have overcome. So take heart. You know what the word take heart means? It's literally just one word in the Greek. It means to dare. It means be daring. Take heart means be daring. I have overcome the world. That's that's. That's so profound to me. Have courage in the face of adversity. Why? Because you have a hope. The eternal weight of glory awaits you, which means you can face anything that this world throws at you. You can do anything as hard as it might be. That's why Jesus was able to walk towards the cross with, such, with joy on his lips because he knew what awaited him. He knew what he was, for the joy set before him. We have an unsinkable joy, which means we can be daring to do the right thing even when it's going to cost us everything. We can, we can be daring enough to actually lay down our lives. You can be daring enough to, 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 to do the right thing at your job even though it's going to cost you. Even though, you, even though it means you might lose your job, you, you can have the courage and the daring to lay down. Why? Because your job doesn't define you because you've got an eternal weight of glory. That's, that's what's giving you hope. That's what's giving you your buoyancy. You could be daring enough to say no to the, to the wrong things, even though there might be some immediate gratification. Be daring. He has overcome the world. Amen? Let's pray.